0: Okay, so hello, everybody. Uh, welcome to this uh, Monash Musculoskeletal Research Unit podcast. My name is Peter Maliaris. I'm um, one of the members of the MMAU, and I'm joined by Tim travail and Josh Norton, who are also part of MMAU. Uh, we've also got a couple of guests with us today, and they have recently written a paper in uh, Nature Reviews uh, that is entitled Tendinopathy. And uh, we've got two of the authors uh, that have written that paper, the first author, Neil Miller, and uh, another author, Paul Kerwin, and they're both uh, leading lights in the, in the world of tendinopathy, so we're, we're really um, happy that they could join us today to discuss that paper, and it's a, it's a really, really uh, interesting um, and thorough paper uh, on tendinopathy, so I'd, I'd highly recommend that people uh, read the paper um, if you haven't already. When you listen to this podcast. So, thank you very much for joining us, uh, Paul and Neil.
1: Welcome okay.
0: Welcome to the podcast. Um, we're really interested in your paper because, um, you know, tendinopathy obviously is an area that, you know, we're, we're all very interested in. And uh, it is um, an area that uh, there are advances and, and things and lots of research groups working towards uh, various goals. And um, I think it summarizes some of the advances. And some of the recent findings and some of the new um avenues that people are going into very nicely and gives a really good overview tell us a little bit about well actually before we dive in tell us about uh, tell us briefly about what both of you guys are, are up to at the moment um uh do you want to start neil
2: oh yeah thanks um so at the moment i suppose clinically um post-covid or during covid been, it's been busy but in a different way but uh, we've we've just finished so tendinopathy wise we've just finished our uh, RCT on uh, anti-IL-17 treatment which uh, Paul knows about he sees a lot of these in this, uh, his clinic and, uh, and so we've finished a, an 88 patient study looking at cuff tendinopathy in that and then in the in the lab basically we have uh, just had a couple of recent well recent publication on T-cells and we're also doing some single cell sequencing, so that gives you, that. what we're trying to build is a tendon, what we call a tendon cell atlas, so to say what the tendon looks like in health, and then what it looks like in disease, which cells talk to one another, and how we might therefore make them communicate better. So that's, that's it in a nutshell. Fantastic, thank you. And, and your clinical work? Just uh, briefly. Yeah, so I'm. I, so unfortunately, I always apologise wherever I go because I'm an orthopaedic surgeon. So when I talk to physios, I practically cry because they're ready to like pelt me one. And um, when I talk to orthopaedic surgeons, I have to apologise for working with rheumatologists and physiotherapists. And when I go to rheumatology, I have to just apologise in general. So I am an orthopaedic mainly shoulder surgeon, although I see a lot of multiple tendinopathies, I suppose a lot of. We run, I run a sort of UK wide now, treating those complicated uh, rheumatology overlap patients who, you know, you maybe want to run away from, but I really enjoy that because I think that's a huge area where, and Paul will back me up in this, he sees a lot in Dublin and Ireland that they're not very well treated. So um, clinically, that's what keeps me busy.
0: Fantastic. That's great. And we'll get back to your uh, your trial later on, I hope as well, and discuss that a little bit more. Uh, Paul, tell us a little bit about what you're doing clinically and, and from a research point of view.
1: Yeah. Well, like Neil said, I work in a Dublin public hospital as a physiotherapist and I work in, a am attached to a rheumatology department. So I see MSK and rheumatology. As, a, as Neil said, I see a large, large portion of patients with tendinopathies on a background of an inflammatory arthropody, and of course then the usual tendinopathies that are not involved in inflammatory arthritis and um, i'm also on the tail end of recovering from a phd and i did a trial looking at um topical gtn and nitric oxide delivery for achilles tendinopathy and um, i also head physiotherapist for a professional football team here in ireland and um, so and i also have a small have a small private clinic where i just see some people on the side so um, that's my kind of, that's, yeah, that's, that's, that's me.
0: <laughs> Fantastic. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you very much for that. Uh, I'm sure people will be reading and hearing about your research, um, you know, coming out and all your all your uh, PhD stuff uh, more and more uh, over the next uh, little while. So so basically getting onto the paper then, what's, um, it's, it's a paper in Nature Reviews and it's um, generally papers in Nature Reviews have really, uh, Going to be well read. Um, tell me about what motivated you to write it, and also what um, the intended audience um, you see for the paper is. Let Neil take start off.
2: That. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. I suppose I am. Um, I was becoming a little bit frustrated with attending uh, reviews that were in the literature. Uh, a little bit frustrated that I didn't feel they were presented a sort of balance view a balance view between what a physio thought what a surgeon maybe thought and and what a sports physician thought and that's that's very difficult because you put those three in a room you know it's not an easy it's not an easy time so that's what sort of drove me to that and i've sort of written about the inflammatory mechanisms and that's very controversial you get a lot of uh you know you get a lot of flack sometimes in the tender word for that so i wanted to sort of um bring in a really more widespread view of the authorship, I think, as well. Um, Getting people like Paul, Christian, uh, you know, American surgeons, just to get a more view of what really happens in the real world and how we might help people uh, treat tendinopathy. Because, you know, for non-asbestos, it's a real pain in that, you know, many rheumatologists see it, don't really know what to do, many general practitioners, even sports physicians. So I thought to try and bring a broad view. And that's difficult. Part of the premise for a primer in nature is that it has to be a broad audience. You can't just speak to, you know, yourselves as experts. And so that's very difficult to do, I think, with tendinopathy. But I hope, I think we've been able to give enough, um, and Paul can back me up on this, that, that you know, we've given enough evidence base to it to really make it meaningful rather than just make it very so basic that it doesn't appeal to To experts that was the sort of driver and and Paul could speak to you know he was very integral in in the the management section I really wanted to to get the loading coming through in particular and Paul I mean he took great lead in that as well.
0: Mm. Yeah I think look that 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 uh it it certainly does come through it certainly does come through I think it as I said in the intro it does give a, a a very good overview and we'll talk about and it's interesting to hear say about the um uh, inflammation and some of those um, areas that are debated more. And I think that is really important for us to, as uh, researchers and people active in this field to
1: discuss and, and bring to the fore in these reviews. Um, anything you want to add to that, Paul? Yeah, I mean, what, to, first of all, the, the, the chance to contribute to the paper was just a great pleasure for me. Um, so I, I, I bit Neil's hand off to have the opportunity. And um, because when he described what he wanted to do, he described the paper that I wish was there when I was starting my PhD, or when I was starting maybe my delving into tendonopathy. What well, he really kind of laid out that he wanted it was like a yeah, kind of encompassed so much that I was like, this is the paper I wished I'd had when I was then maybe starting off. and um, because it was so broad from the people who were involved in it. And um it was. You know, the, the goal is to try and have a very balanced view which is hard to do when you've got you're trying to keep all the tendonopathy experts happy from a, from the shoulder tendonopathy people to the Achilles tendonopathy to the glutes it's a it's a challenge to to get that right and um, it was it was just and also for me it was an opportunity to learn like I said I've been a clinician for like 27, 28 years now and I kind of came to academia uh, quite late if you like and and um, so just to, for me, to also do, like I learned an awful lot by obviously writing the paper, learning from people who are very well-established experts. And, and that was a great opportunity for me to see how the process works, working with a collaborate. because Neil from the very start, when we, we, me and for him first started talking, what was very evident from me, really believes that collaboration is the easiest way to get it done and working as a team. And that, that appealed to me because I've always liked to work in teams where everybody's input is appreciated, respected, both from the hospital work but also from the sporting environment where I work um, and like it comes back to what Nina says. I mean, it's hard to get all, if you, if you only sit in a sporting environment, tendinopathy will look a certain way and you probably will treat it a certain way. If you work in a hospital environment, where environment where there's a lot of inflammatory disease and tendinopathy on top of it, you might approach it in another way. Yeah. So I think, yeah. um, I think the, the it's not tendonopathy is not just that niche elite sporting kind of problem that some people think. It's so broad. It's so broad, and um, I think that's one of the challenges that we have with tendonopathy is that it's not it, it, it's such a broad profile of people who are impacted by it. I
0: I absolutely agree, and go back to what Neil said initially that it's not your sexy sports people that are sort of, you know, your sprinters and all your athletes. It's the the people that I see are probably similar to what the people that Neil sees and that is, you know, and and you guys, both of you guys, uh, end of the road type people who um, have got multiple things going on. So, it's not just a sexy sort of uh, sports injury that most people or a lot of people come to it uh initially uh, uh, via so it's, it, it is interesting um in terms of i'll just bring the students in in terms of um, josh and tim having read the paper um is there is there sort of um, anything anything you want to comment on in terms of uh help you know in terms of how it has uh, perhaps Influence you in a way. What was what? What did you like? What didn't you like about it? I think um, Paul put it really nicely uh, talking about how he would really like uh, to have read this paper back at the start of his PhD. Um, that's where I'm sitting now and looking at uh, rotator cuff tendinopathy or shoulder pain, and uh, I think it's a fantastically well balanced review um, that provides an excellent summary for uh, tendinopathy, and I think that. Uh, as clinicians, we need to take more of that approach where we can take a balanced view across the board, that can, uh, captures that whole spectrum of those tendinopathy presentations. Um, and it does certainly lead to uh, treating those tendinopathies maybe slightly differently uh, if you've got a sporting population versus those sort of yeah end of the road deconditioned uh, uh, sort of uh, longer, more chronic tendinopathies. So well done and thank you. Yeah, I think in a similar position myself to, to Josh early in the PhD. This is a, a very timely paper and, and fantastic for, for us to be able to read. And Neil, when you mentioned that that you were trying to bring together different people's opinions, that's really resonated for me because I think coming from a sporting background recently, and even working in sort of it, with Peter in clinic, we do see quite an athletic population. And um, you know, it's always all about loading. And I think if you're on Twitter recently, if you did anything else apart from load a tendon, you'd be shot for not being evidence-based. And so what I really like about this paper is actually just bringing in those other considerations. Um, And my PhD work is looking around GTPS, so I think I am going to be looking at not such a sporting population, it is going to be a bit more holistic. So some of these other considerations that we've got uh, in a holistic paper like this is is going to be really interesting for me and definitely resonates, so yeah, thank you. Right, so let's get into some of the meat then um, in some of the time we have remaining. Uh, in terms of your, you've got some really nice uh, uh, pathophysiology um, uh, discussions in there and a couple of really nice figures, uh, figure three and figure four, I think it is. Um, can you please give me a, a brief summary of, of what you think um, happens from a, uh, and obviously it's very, very complex as you've outlined, <laughs> but what happens from a, uh, if you're if you're a say a, a new clinician uh, arriving at this, um, how how would you describe a, a pathology like this to your patient? And um, what are the key things that help us as clinicians in treating people to understand about the pathophysiology? Does anyone want to want to tackle that? That's
2: a big one, <laughs> Neil. That's you. <laughs> um, I look, I view, uh, the way I experience my patients is, um, it is it's a field healing response and that we all, you know, we can talk about inflammation, we can talk about epigenetics, we can talk about ECM regulation, whatever silo you want to sit in the tendon up the and wave your flag at loading, it, it, at the end of the day, we're, it, it, the tissue becomes dysregulated in some way through whether it's, Whatever your favourite thing is that week, and it's trying to heal to get back to normal. That is the same as every tissue. The 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 difference with tendon, I suppose, is that we don't. We maybe know a lot more now about how those the crosstalk between the cells, the immune system, the vascular system. I think we're much better than where we were ten years ago. I mean, obviously, I'm a little bit biased, and Paul can speak more to to the um, loading side. I mean, I do think fundamentally that. With the discoveries in the last ten years, and science has helped dissect out a role for inflammation—not what we, as a clinician, you would think is inflammation. What I'm talking about is inflammatory mechanisms. In other words, when you cut yourself, you need inflammation to heal that. When you, you know, you have, when you have a head injury, you require some form of inflammation to repair. You know, all I'm saying is that inflammation becomes dysregulated from our normal homeostasis where we're trying, that immune system's trying to fix the tendon. And I think there's a lot of cues there that then cause the, the matrix and the structure to be affected that I'll end up presenting to my GP or my physio with discomfort, not able to do. I think Paul will, will, will cover loading a bit better than, than I would. Um, but that's my sort of opinion.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Like there's plenty of people get tendon pain and recover fine. The ones we see are the ones who, as you said, they've had a failed healing. And I, and I like, as I said, there's plenty of different theories out there. And like, as Neil said, you can put just one, one week, you might like one, two months later, you might read one and find it, you know, like another one. And I, I personally think the, the truth probably lies in a bit of all of them. And, um, but I like the failed healing model as an explanation for patients. Cause I think they can get that. You know, I don't think sitting down and talking cells to patients is the way to go. I think they just understand that, listen, there's a myriad of maybe circumstances that led your tendon pain just to not heal and through whatever we're gonna try, be it loading as a physio or other adjuncts and maybe molecular treatments in the future, that we're gonna try and get that failed healing to get back on path. Um, so I try and keep it simple um, because one, I'm quite simple in how I think of things and I like to think that, I don't wanna complicate things for patients. So I like using that same analogy. Of it's a failed healing con- concept to explain it to patients. But yeah, you know, I also use a driving down the healing highway. You took a right turn. You're in a cul de sac, and you can't get out. We're trying to get you back on path.
0: Yeah, no, I really like that. I really like that because there is so much complexity that comes across in the paper, and so much, so many unknowns. And then we have to have some way of explaining it to our patients and being able to bridge that gap. And I think that's a that's a really uh, it's, it's it's really nice to hear. Um, in terms of that just delving into that pathophys a little bit more though um, basically I know you've spoken about uh, inflammation a couple of times uh, Neil um, and it is something that has been debated uh, for many many years now Um, just give us a very brief rundown of what you think
2: the key disputes are about and why it's important so the key dispute comes down to your definition of inflammation because I'm a clinician and I was taught that it's a hot inflamed bit of tissue with a raised CRP and an ESR and that's that's just that's 20 30 years ago I mean rheumatologists do not use that even today they, they have now very good molecular scalpels to pick apart why a patient might need a, a B cell drug versus a TNF block where they have moved uh, and, and vastly changed the way their patients are treated. So, um, you, you know, that, that, that's where the crux of the inflammatory debate comes, and you need to sort of get past that, as I always say. In that, I'm not, you know, in, if, I, if I take a biopsy of a normal tendon in a 20 year old athlete, um, about 10% of the cells sitting in his tendon are dendritic cells. So, dendritic cells are hugely important scavengers that sit around and activate the inflammatory process they sit as they call sentinels and there's mast cells and so you can't debate with me or I don't think you can you can't say from a cellular point of view that they're just not doing anything I mean that's they, they, they are they're providing your tissue your tendon as you sit there with homeostatic mechanisms to get that I can go for a run and not feel pain as Paul says so I think it's just a use of language, and maybe i I, you know, I I do think that you know people are are a little bit siloed in the Thames world and and once you get in that silo to change your opinion can be quite difficult and therefore that's why I think this paper I hope gives a, a balanced view on that look I, I I obviously am biased and I think information's important, but equally, I think loading and the mechanisms behind how loading change drives immune cells and collagen, we don't really know. So I'm not just in that immune box. There's lots, as Paul says, others, but the debate about inflammation really comes from people not moving past their clinical biases for inflammation and just saying, right, okay, I get it now. There's inflammatory mechanisms that are clearly dysregulated, and particularly in the patients, Paul, and probably you see, is once you get past to chronicity, there's a lot of immune dysregulation. There's a there's huge changes in cytokine, immune cell biology. That if you get maybe earlier in the you know in in, the, in, in that sort of four to eight months period, where we've done some biopsy work. You could probably change the course of a of a patient quite significantly with an adjunct. Um, so that's I think that was the debate i'm not i agree with you i'm not i think the debate has moved on and that i think most people would agree at a cellular level that it is important how that translates to patients and we can come back to that later with trialing is yeah that's that's a whole different debate because you know um yeah
0: we can we can have a quick chat about that now um do you think that there's i guess one of the arguments that you hear and that, and that's a very i i I Understand that, and um, I I agree with that explanation. Of it comes down to the definitions, and um, uh, it. um, Do you think there's a danger? And this is what something that is put forward that we have. We're calling it now, um, or we're saying that inflammation is involved. uh, We just give them anti-inflammatories and then expect them to get better.
2: Yeah. Why would you expect? A 30 year old drug that doesn't target any key molecular pathway to have a clinical difference to your patient sitting at the end of your bed. So it's a bit like, why would I expect um, somebody who's doing half their eccentric loading regime to really get bit? So it's all about contextualizing. And maybe I'm bad at that in that I maybe have, or we have maybe not described inflammatory, what we plan to treat and how we tend to use it as a treatment. I'm not saying it should be used at all in, in the majority of patients, but there is a significant proportion of patients, and Paul will can speak to this, that we see that I think targeting those immune pathways will probably help with tissue resolution.
0: Mm. Fantastic, and we'll, we will talk about that uh, later on. Um, Let's move on uh, to just a bit of a discussion about the treatments. So you've got a a section on treatments uh, in the paper, um, and maybe I'll bring Paul in because a lot of the initial treatments are talking about loading, but uh, what do you see as... um, what do you see? As some of the key treatments that people should take away. Obviously, you talk about you know lots of different treatments, lots of different evidence, lots of different uncertainty. Uh, what treatments do you really want people to take away, or do you just want them to be completely uncertain?
1: If they're completely uncertain. They're in good company. That's because that's that's where you end up being. I definitely feel quite. Uh, I feel more confused and clarified by <laughs> by learning more about tendinopathy. But no, I think I think we definitely wanted to drive home that we felt that loading was 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 key to restoring capacity of attending. It's the tendon's main simple job was to be able to be load tolerant, and I don't think we're going to find, I doubt we'll find any treatment that is better than loading about that will restore load capacity any better than a loading program. And what we hoped to kind of get across with the approach was that you know. It, this is no longer the, the era of, of eccentrics for all is hopefully done and dusted. I think we've, we, we, we should be moving on from that, but it still is, it's common. And I think it, I, I can see where Neil's worry is about when you start talking about inflammation again, you're starting to worry about what people are going to go towards an anti-inflammatory approach. And I think that's, I think that would be a really big retrograde step for the whole, you know, tendon community. If the message that we put out is that, okay, we're promoting anti-inflammatories that is certainly not the case things have moved on so much further from that i think we're looking to something much more bespoke and much more targeted in years to come and um, from that point of view and um, so i i can see where the worry is i see where people are, are worried about using inflammation and then people are like oh i knew it was tendonitis all along so i'll get a you know, prescription pad and then they'll be sorted And don't that's not the message and um, I remember the, was remember the Oxford. Was it the Oxford conference that you were supposed to talk at Neil, but your I think you had a daughter come early or something like that, and you couldn't speak. Is that right? Mm, I did. Um, I did. Yes. Yeah. And I think it, Stephanie Daykin gave a lovely talk at that, and she's she kind of made that point about like you know we don't want to we don't want to block inflammation because if you block inflammation, you're, you're interfering with resolution. Um, and and that's I think that's an important message. And there's not, some nice Saran papers that she uh, pointed me towards. Um, uh, from that uh, from that conference, which is it's just a nice key t- takeaway that like you know you know we want to get resolution as a problem. We're not trying to just block inflammatory pathologies, like as you said, 30-year-old medications. Um, and yeah. I know I've got a little bit back to what Neil said, but I just wanted to say from my point of view, I think it's I've seen targeted therapies working mm-hmm. in rheumatology do wonders for patients with complex um, tendinopathies that affect multiple body parts, and sometimes it's just one tendinopathy in addition to their inflammatory arthritis. And when you, what's always fascinating to me is this is a very complex molecular cascade with lots of different molecules involved, but how adding just like, in, 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 adding in an anti-TNF alone, how that can just change somebody's, you know, in their whole quality of life. So although it's a complex process, it's amazing what one molecule can do to help that individual out. and. Um, so if I, I'll get back to the loading, like you said, like you said, like you said, Pete, but I think we we try just to make it very balanced that we think the, that the best program will be the one that the patient will do. And um, I don't think we're hanging our hat on saying it has to be this or has to be that. Uh, and I think time with these patients is probably the best thing you can give them that you can give them time, listen to their story. And I think when they, you give them time and understand if they feel that you get their problem, I think that's a big, a big part to kind of get buy in from them, mm-hmm. and that takes time to sit down and listen to them, explain to them what's going on, mm-hmm. tell them what the plan will be, what your treatment will look like. and I give them options. So, say if I have my Achilles tendonopathy patients, I have a little handout with three or four different protocols, and I say, well, This one requires X, Y, and Z, that one you need to go to the gym, this one you're allowed to keep on running, like using. So, I'll take, say, the silver eagle and say, If you want to keep on running. We can use silver negligence approach here. If you want, to, if you have access to a gym and you want to use the gym, let's go heavy slow resistance. If you don't have access to a gym and you just you know have, want to sit at the bottom of your staircase for hours and <laughs> hours on end, well then we can use eccentrics. But I try and let the patient choose which one they feel they have a best likelihood of adhering to, mm-hmm. rather than me be prescriptive and say you need to do this. I think if you, and I think it's probably a hard. I think it's probably one of the most undervalued but most important aspects of seeing a patient is that time to go through options with them and um, let them have a role to play in choosing what program they want to be involved in. I, I saw
0: you in the paper, you talk about working Alliance, which is, which comes across with what you're saying now um and um it, it just seems to be such a broad approach with tendinopathy we want to we want to engage them we want to get their working aligns, but we also want to load them um, and then we also have got these specific things which I think is really really good to see it uh progressing and moving towards you know uh, we, we're, we're trying to encompass you know so many different elements now and that comes across with the paper in terms of you know, you've got your rehab, but also the engagement of the patient. And then you've also got potentially in the future, these biological and other avenues that we can also be more targeted with. Um, so do you, do you want to, does someone want to talk about uh, just the biological um, uh, avenues and pathways? Uh, is there anything that we see as? Uh, I know you've got your trial, Neil, and Mm-hmm. Um, you've done that recently and that's that's really super fast it seems because uh, i think i saw something on twitter when you first started to recruit for that
2: was yeah that right, so, I mean yeah, yeah so we, we finished it was quite we, we had five five us sites three eu and then glasgow as the is the uk site um mm-hmm. in, in cough tendopathy we, rec- we actually recruited well i think that tells you that we're Really crap at treating cuff tendinopathy because recruitment in these sort of not especially when you're 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 going against the grain, you're having a real paradigm shift where you're saying we're going to give you systemic drug for a local condition in your shoulder. Now we anticipated that we would have a lot of pushback from that, but our we had we had only two patients drop out and we were oversubscribed significantly. So I I think that really reflects badly on me because it tells me I'm really treating these patients not very well. But that, look, I I mean, I think to get across to your listeners is I am not saying that uh, everybody needs a novel drug. All I'm trying to say is as a field, we are way behind modern molecular medicine. We're, We're like really badly behind here. As Paul said, you know, rheumatology has transformed people's lives um, with really good basic science. So all I'm saying is that when we do really good basic science in the tendon, we need to be able to take that faith and that leap to already either approve drugs or move it in quickly to the patient. And we haven't been as good as that as what I think we should have been, although I think we're getting better. So the rationale was that is taking, it's a, a, a leap of faith. Um, that re, that trial has reported out. We're writing that up at the moment. And... Uh, You know, does it cure all cuff tendinopathy? No. Uh, If it had, I would have been shocked because that's not what the molecular message tells us. Molecular message for IL-17 is that it's really an early tendinopathy where you have an inflammatory signal, either an MR or they're really, really painful. At six months out, it makes a really significant difference um, compared to placebo, Um, you know, more than I ever really thought it would. The problem is that we only had probably about 30 to 40 patients in that group. So that's why in the next, in the phase three trial, uh, we'll be much more specific on on that grouping and who will get it. So because part of my problem with tendinopathy trials is that a lot of trials we do, even in OA, we're never really upfront about the inclusion criteria. We try to grab everything and then we try to make the drug perfect for everybody. And that's not the way, as you will see, patients and policies we could pretty much tell which patients are going to, Paul, we could pretty much tell what patients were going to respond to a biologic quite well, at, you know, from the clinic, I suspect. I, you know, I feel I could. So I think it will be useful for a certain subset of patients, which is what the science tells us. The science doesn't tell us that a 25-year-old has got an IL-17 signal in their tendon. It tells us that a 40-year-old, with really acute shoulder pain at the early stages of tendinopathy, has a very high 17 signature and doesn't respond to loading, gets annoyed. one well, doesn't then engage with the physio or the surgeon says, you're doing nothing for me, goes for another pain gets PRP, which isn't going to work. You know, you, you can, you can write the stuff. I mean, you can, so... So it's about being, from what you're saying, being a bit more specific
0: with the treatments that we have. PRP uh, has been shown not to really work, and uh, maybe that is because it's so uh, non-specific in terms of uh, what we're targeting there. And um, it's it's interesting, and I think it's it's good for it's good to hear that because I think we are in this uh, bubble almost of we have you know loading is the only solution, and uh, we. You know i know that a lot of patients don't get better with loading and then they come back and they say what's next and um there's no there's no real option at that point and um so that's 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 really interesting to hear uh, we're going to finish off now with just one question and maybe you can both contribute to this one but Basically, just going to finish off with a question on where you think the future is going with these treatments. And you have probably touched on some of this, but if you think, Paul, there's any avenues for uh, improvements in exercise and how that should be, uh, or do you think it's really we should just be uh, focusing on engaging and uh, getting patients a bit more engaged with rehab? And Neil, if you think there's any other uh, avenues and where where you think or where you think the research should be going to deal with um, you know some of the more specific treatments.
1: Yeah, well, I'll I'll take the easy one first, and that Neil take the difficult. And <laughs> um, yeah, it was interesting to see the questions when you post them out today because sometimes it just it makes it makes you think about stuff that you just you know sometimes you're just going along and just you kind know, of buried in your work and you kind of don't step back and actually think. So I, I think, from my point of view, where I'd like to see the future, if you like, is if we if there's any way we could identify responders from non-responders, I think that would be that would be fantastic. At the moment, the the only way we can identify non-responders is when they don't respond, and um, we like rheumatology. We move quite quick to get people onto the right treatment, the right drug, because we know that the, if they stay. In an inflammatory process for a significant amount of time they'll have permanent irreversible joint damage and i want no part and parcel to be involved in that and that's why one of my first and biggest mantras when i see tendinopathy is to ensure that it is a tendinopathy and not the tendinopathy driven by some other disease and then i'm asking somebody to buy into a 12 week to potentially one year long loading program when you know, I've missed a spondyloartropathy and this person's life is going to take a different direction because of me missing them. So that's, that's my first, that's my clinical kind of hat that I wear that I'm thorough at the start to make sure. And I miss them still, but, you know, I, I, I try to make sure that that's the first form. just to, just
0: to in there, I've learned that from you, which is really great. Um, no, um,
1: thank you. <laughs> but, um, it's, it, it also like when I started working in rheumatology and people say, you're doing rheumatology and you're working in tendons, like where's the connection? I am so thankful to have fallen by accident into rheumatology um, because, you know, little did I know, like, you know, 2002, 2003, when I was starting to learn about TNF and interleukins and all these new exciting treatments that having had that background knowledge would help me so much at this point in my career. And um, but I think because I see the, the some of the very challenging tendinopathies in the hospital, I also see the sporting ones. I see elite sports, I see high-end sports, but they're normally the slightly easier ones for me because I'm normally getting them, say our football team, say two tendinopathies in, in preseason, I'm seeing them day three, day four, and they're not turning into those ongoing tendinopathies. They're not the challenge for me. The challenges are the ones I see in the hospital where they have multiple other things going on. And I, think um one of the future directions is for people who have maybe a large metabolic drive or tendinopathy and um, i'd love to see some direction go there where maybe loading and exercise coupled with addressing lifestyle and metabolic drivers it, it it's i think it's such a big obvious area that hasn't been tackled yet you know we're 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 we're, like Neil said. We're way, way, way behind. We really are, and I think there's a. I see a lot of tendinopathies with a large metabolic component to it, and for them, load may have been the precipitating factor. But without addressing the the metabolic factors that are contributing to that tendon's load intolerance, I think we're. uh, we're 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 probably finding that's going to be a very challenging thing to get sorted. And, and hearing Tim's doing some work in GTPS, I suspect that's something that might resonate with him. And um, but I think yeah, I think I think the future for me will probably be exercise, for where load is the driving factor. Let load be the driving treatment. Where there's a metabolic factor contributing to the load intolerance, if we fail to address those metabolic factors, and um, I think we're just we're just I think we're I wouldn't say doomed, but we have a very less likelihood of getting a successful outcome. So I think we'll have much more, rather than just as everyone gets low, I think the future of tendinopathy will be, this person will get load. this person might get rest if his acute, this person will have to address their metabolic factors. This person might be a target for a molecular treatment in the future. I think we'll see much more avenues for treatment of tendinopathy, rather than just eccentrics for all, you know? And so, I'm just
0: being honest with ourselves to say, look, uh, this person has got a metabolic issue and and we did, we and we have to do something different here. Uh, and that's a hard conversation to have with patients sometimes and it's a hard thing to actually get patients to implement as well. But uh, the lifestyle things you're talking about, but certainly we have to recognise, I completely agree that there's it's not just a, a one size fits all with these patients. So, so let's uh, let's let's um go on to Neil then. Is there anything, Neil, that you think is there any from your stuff, but also from any other things that you've written about in the review? Uh, is there anything that is promising coming forward from a, another sort of biological pathways or any other treatments point of view?
2: Yeah, I think. I mean, I think there's at least two or three other pathways that we'll probably get drug targets from. There's probably two that there's drugs already available. Um, There's the question of local versus systemic delivery that always comes up. It just depends on the drug type and what what we think. I think from my point of view, we just need to get, that's a side issue really to me, because we need to just be better at trialing. We need to be better at outcomes. We need to be more honest uh, when we're designing trials and saying what groups are we trying to, Grasp because the patients I see and policies are the, are the non responders. So, why are we including people we know are going to respond that would never get a 17 blocker? So, my view, and we wrote about this, I wrote about this towards the end, is I think maybe better trialing design. And we can learn a lot from rheumatology there, I think a, a massive amount, and the OA literature where they have been trialing novel molecules now, and there seems to be quite a number coming through. I mean, my, my take home would be to anybody listening is that, you know, treat the patient. Use the what I sort of coin as precision or tendinopathy. Listen to the patient. Listen to all the factors that are going on and then treat the patient. Don't treat, as Paul says, this, you must must do this. If you sit with a patient, 99% of the time they're right and you're wrong, I find. Um, Maybe it's just me. But you can construct a program with an adjunct three or four months down the line. If they're failing, revisit it, chat to them, and... I think these more novel treatments will help us with those non-responders at a much earlier stage. We need to be more aggressive earlier, like a bit like rheumatoid PSA when we know it's not really going well. We say, right, let's try this with loading and see. And I think that's where the novel molecules will sit, where you've, you're getting them probably around about the six-month market or four, maybe five, six-month market, and we you know they're just not going to then bite the bullet and, and, and use one of these these molecules. Equally that we should also recognize that we will fail and we should fail. If I'm not publishing a trial that doesn't show something's working, then there's also something wrong. So I would hope to see some trials that fail because that represents the, the, the true nature of the disease. That's why I would hope so.
0: Yeah. Now I think there's some really, really good lessons in there for researchers as well as clinicians and um, getting better at uh, at trials and uh, uh, selection of participants for trials and the people that we look at, I think, is, is really, really important. Um, it's a long road, but it sounds like you're painting a picture of a long road there. It's good that yeah. you're very young, Neil, because uh, you've got, you know, hopefully a few years ahead of you to be doing some of this work, but uh, the rest of the, the community. But that's, uh, that's I'm great. I'm the way
1: you left me out at that, just as early as yeah.
2: <laughs>
0: You're, you're even younger, Paul. Uh, no, it's, it's, uh, it's good to see you guys uh, uh, motivated. And certainly I'm sort of inspired by some of the things you're saying. So that's great. Uh, thank you very much for that. We'll be uh, looking forward to seeing you guys hopefully soon uh, when we're cool. able to. So thank you very much for, for joining us today. My oh, pleasure. Thanks, thanks for the
2: invite. Cheers.